بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله this is Lesson 106 in the Radiant Light, covering the life of the Prophet And last week, we were talking about the lead up to the Battle of Khaybar. So, we mentioned that the Prophet recently came to a peace treaty between the Muslims and Quraysh at the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah. And the question that we addressed was, why, after the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah was agreed on, did excursions continue to take place in the north and in these tribal areas? Well, one of the simple answers is that there was no treaty between the Muslims and those other tribes. There was no treaty between the Muslims and Ghatafan, for instance. So this leads us to the next question, which is, why exactly did the Battle of Khaybar take place? Remember that we mentioned how after the signing of the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah, many Muslims felt this was something of a humiliation. They didn't like the terms of the treaty. But as they were making their way back to Medina, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the entirety of Surah Al-Fatih to the Prophet sallallahu And in that chapter, Allah ta'ala says, فَأَنزَلَ السَّكِينَةَ عَلَيْهِمْ وَأَثَابَهُمْ فَتْحًا قَرِيبًا وَمَغَانِمَ كَثِيرَةً تَأْخُذُونَهَا وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَزِيزًا حَكِيمًا Allah says, that he sent down sakina, tranquility upon them and rewarded them with a near victory, meaning a victory that is coming soon. It is close. And he has rewarded them with abundant spoils of war that they will take. That ayah is prophesizing the battle of Khaybar, telling the Muslims right after they signed the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah, that he sent Sakina to them and he rewarded them with a Fath Qarib, a victory that is near. That near victory and the Ghanima that will come as a result is concerning the Battle of Khaybar. So there's no treaty between the Muslims and Ghatafan. And we remember that they had allied with Banu Quraiza during the Battle of Ahzab. And in the city of Khaybar, this oasis town, a large number of Banu Nadir who had been expelled from Medina had settled. So this was an oasis town and it's narrated that there were many Jewish tribesmen of Medina who already owned date orchards there in Khaybar. And when they arrived at Khaybar post-expulsion from Medina, they were already, they were received and uh, they were accepted as tribal leaders. So they didn't just come to Khaybar as refugees. They came to Khaybar post-expulsion and they were accepted immediately into leadership positions among those people. So now that the Yahud of Banu Nadir are stationed at Khaybar, they thought that if they bid their time, and built alliances, they could hopefully one day regain what they lost and come back to Medina victorious, taking back what was once theirs. So we mentioned last week that prior to Al-Hudaybiyah, the Prophet ﷺ couldn't just send a large force north to Khaybar to deal with this looming threat. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Reason number one, there were still conflicts between the Muslims and the Quraysh in the south. If the Prophet ﷺ had committed 
large numbers of forces to the north, it would have left Medina relatively open for attack from the south. So he couldn't do that. Another reason that we mentioned is cited not in the books of Sirah, but cited by Imam al-Sarakhsi in his Kitab al-Mawsut, where he talks in commenting on Kitab al-Sirah of Imam Muhammad al-Shaybani. There's a narration there which mentions that there was an existing agreement between the people of Khaybar and Quraysh, that if any side was attacked, the other side would respond and come to their aid. Meaning, if the Muslims had attacked towards the south, towards Quraysh, the Jews of Banu Nadir in Khaybar would have responded by defending Quraysh and joining sides with them. And if the Muslims had attacked in the north to Khaybar during that time, the Quraysh had agreed they would also join in and side with the people of Khaybar against the Muslims. But during the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah, Imam Muhammad al-Sarakhsi transmits that this particular agreement between the people of Khaybar and Quraysh was annulled. So that particular condition was no longer in effect. So coming out of the post-Hudaybiyah environment, there's a peace treaty between the Muslims and Quraysh, and that pre-existing agreement is no longer in effect, which, which essentially opens up the north, allowing for a response to this imminent threat coming from Khaybar. And the excursions that are taking place in the north are also shows, shows of force, uh, acting as a kind of deterrent. So the, the Yahud of Banu Nadir at Khaybar are bidding their time. And these attacks are perhaps slowing down that process, but they can't hold them off forever. Eventually, they're going to try to make some move. And so the Prophet ﷺ had sent them a letter inviting them to Islam. And Allah revealed to him to make preparations to march out to Khaybar to deal with this imminent threat. And... Last week we talked about those preparations. We didn't get into the actual story of the battle. We're starting that today, inshallah. So the Prophet ﷺ had made preparations to march out to Khaybar as Allah promised him. And he told the companions to make themselves ready, telling them, ready yourselves for this village of oppressors. For you have been given victory over it, inshallah, if Allah wills. So the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wa took 1,700 men and he took Umm Salama with him as well. And some narrations indicate there were a few other women that went along on this battle. And they left for Khaybar. Now how far is Khaybar from Medina? I mentioned it last week. Two hours by foot, by car, driving. It's 150 kilometers, give or take, from Medina. So the Prophet ﷺ and the companions marched there on horseback and on camel and on foot and they reached Khaybar 150 kilometers away in two days. Two days. So averaging 75 kilometers or so in one day. That is uh, remarkable when you consider the amount of distance covered by people on horseback, on camelback and most likely also by foot. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. They reached it in two days. And when they were making their way there, they had to strategize what will be their angle of approach. What area would they enter from? So one hadith tells us, and this is found in the books of hadith, in the books of Sirah, the Prophet ﷺ hired two guides. And these two guides were from Banu Ashja'ah, and these were mushrikun, they, they weren't even Muslims. But they know the routes, and they know the multiple ways to get into Khaybar, because there's various roads. So the Prophet ﷺ had hired them and told them, proceed ahead of us, so that we arrive at Khaybar between it and Sham. So where is Sham? Greater Syria. So if Medina is here, and Khaybar is to the north of Medina, so the north of Khaybar is Sham, greater Syria. 
he's telling these guides to go ahead and ensure that they arrive at Khaybar between it and Sham. So they want to be north of Khaybar and not approaching from the south of Khaybar. Why did he do this? The reason why is because to the north of Khaybar was Ghatafan, this enemy tribe that had previously allied with Banu, uh, Banu Quraydah, that had contributed to fighting against the Muslims at Ahzab, who were a threat. Because if the people of Khaybar managed to escape, where would they go? They're not going to go south. The Muslims are in the south. And the allied tribes are in the south. But if they go north, they go to a tribe that they have already allied with, they've already attempted to build relationships with for a possible future attack. So by arrive, approaching from the north, it blocks them from reaching their allies and getting reinforcements. So he said to take us so that we arrive from the north between them and Sham to block them from reaching their allies. So the guide, one of the guides, he mentioned that there's actually a lot of roads. There's different ways you can get there. So you should pick the best road. So he says, there's many roads, so which one should I take? The Prophet ﷺ said, tell me their names. Tell me the names of the roads. So he says, there is one road that is named Hazan. Hazan is sorrow or sadness. And you know from these other stories, the Prophet ﷺ liked uh, the fa'al, the good omen. So this man said, well, one of the roads is named Hazan, sorrow. The Prophet ﷺ said, don't take that one. The man said, well, there's another road called Shash, which means confusion or being muddled. He said, do not take that road. Then he says, well, there's another road called Haltib. Haltib is a woodcutter or a wood carrier. And the Prophet ﷺ said, do not take that road either. Now, as this conversation is going on, Umar bin Khattab is there, radiallahu anhu, and he says, Wallahi, I've never seen such ugly names. Who, who names their roads sorrow, confusion, and woodcutter? Who does that? And then this man from Banu Ashja' said, there is only one more road to Khaybar, and it's called Marhab. What does Marhab mean? It means welcome. And the Prophet ﷺ said, yes, take that road. And Umar ibn Khattab looks at the man and says, out of all the roads, why did you mention that one last? So, why didn't you mention it first? So they decide to take this road called Marhab, welcome. And they take this road of Marhab to the north, and when they reached the general area, they got to this place, this valley near Khaybar, called Rajir. And there at this area, the Prophet ﷺ set up a camp between the Yahud of Khaybar and Ghatafan. So this is basically right outside of Khaybar, to the north, blocking any possible uh, excursion from the people of Khaybar to go to the allies of Ghatafan. And here's the thing. Remember we mentioned last week how the Prophet ﷺ had sent them a letter before Obviously in the letter, he's not announcing his arrival. It's an invitation letter to accept Islam. Just as he sends them a letter, they were sent another letter by none other than Abdullah ibn Ubay, the head of the hypocrites. Of course. He sends them a letter, and in this letter, he tells them that the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims are preparing to march north and that they should take precautions and also bring inside of their fortresses all of their valuable belongings and that they should make a way to attack this coming force. He tells them in the letter, you should not be afraid because Muhammad and his people are, and I quote, but a small poorly armed band, and your numbers are great. Now, hasn't this been attempted before? This is exactly what he did before. 
And we saw how that worked out. But here he is again, sending another letter, telling them, you know, be strong, stand up and fight. They're a small force, you'll outnumber them. So when they received this letter, they sent an individual from their own named Kinana ibn Abi Huqayq, and another person named Hawda bin Qais, along with 14 others in their group, to go to Ghatafan, to that tribe, and talk to them. Because this is before the Muslims arrived. So having received this letter, they know that this is going to happen. So they're bidding their time. They send this small group out to Banu Ghatafan to go and negotiate and make them an offer in return for their military support. So just like what happened at Ahzab, the same offer is given to Ghatafan. You'll remember that during the Battle of Ahzab, before they came on board, they were offered half of the yearly harvest of dates. That's a lot of money. They were offered half of the harvest in return for their military support. This time around, the same offer is given. Come and help us, bring your forces, fight with us, and we will give you half of our yearly harvest. And this is Khaybar. It's a massive uh, oasis of, full of date palms. There's a lot of money involved in this. So Ghatafan, like last time, agreed to this because they're not really in it for ideological or religious reasons. They're really in it for the money. They're just opportunists. And that's the reason why they were involved in this. So they agreed. But here's the thing. When they got their men together and got their arms and everything ready, they began to set out from their tribal areas of Ghatafan. And when they got part of the way to Khaybar, they heard this really loud sound coming back from their homes. This loud, unexplainable sound, a sound of terror and fear. They had no idea what this loud sound is and where it's coming from. So thinking that their tribesmen and families were under threat, they did what any sane person would do. They turned back around to see what it was to go and defend their family. And when they got there, they thought the Muslim forces would have been reaching that area, and that's what they were responding to. But it turns out to be nothing. And so they're there back with their families, and by the time they're back there, the Muslims had reached to the north. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala thwarted their assistance of the people of Khaybar by this loud, unexplainable sound. They thought it was the Muslims. They get there, they realize it's not. But by the time they realized that, the Muslims had already reached the north, blocking the two from joining each other. So now we come to the actual story of the Ghazwa. And the reality of Khaybar is that it's not a single Ghazwa with a single battle. It's actually a series of Ghazawat, of, mi of minor and major battles taking place over the course of many, many days. And the reason why is because, as we said, Khaybar is this oasis town, and it has many different forts, fortresses. And the books of Sirah, they mention about 8 to 12 fortresses that the Yehud had built up over time where they would keep their families and where they would live inside. And that's true. There's a, you could say 8 to 12, but when you actually look at the structures now, you see there is more than that number. Perhaps the reason why there's an apparent discrepancy is that there's battles taking place, or we can say there's siege warfare going on between the Muslims and the people of Khaybar in these larger forts, but there's also many smaller ones, and they're perhaps not counting these smaller ones that didn't really count. But when you add up the total number, maybe up to two dozen of these forts. Some of them are much larger than others. So the town of Khaybar is roughly divided into two halves in this oasis town. And when the Muslims arrive at the north, they're camping out and they're waiting for Fajr time to begin their raid. And this was the sunnah of the Prophet it was his practice that he would begin the raids after Fajr. And in Sahih Muslim, we have the hadith 
which mentions that this would not take place until they listened to hear if the Adhan was called. So that became a precedent. If the Adhan was called, it means that Islam is established in this place. Assuming it's an unknown tribe and you don't know what their intentions are. If you hear the Adhan, you know they're Muslim. They listen for the Adhan following that. There's no Adhan, of course. And they begin the raid after Fajr. So the letter that Abdullah bin Ubay sent warned them of this coming attack. But Abdullah bin Ubay didn't know exactly when it was going to happen. So when the Jews of Khaybar get this letter, they know that it's coming, they, but they also don't know when it's going to happen. So in the beginning, when they were unsure exactly when the Muslims would arrive, they began to make some preparations for war as well. Um, there is, it, it, there's an indication that they expected it to take longer than it did. And we, when we piece together the narrations and the stories of how they prepared, we get this impression that they get this letter and they're thinking, okay, a couple of weeks maybe, two or three weeks and they'll get here. They had no idea that the Muslims would reach there in two days. So when they arrived, they were completely unprepared. But they knew it was coming. Uh, one narration mentions that when they got the letter from Abdullah bin Ubay, they would send out 10,000 fighting age males outside of the fortresses to stand in rows uh, awaiting the arrival of the Muslims. And they weren't sure when they were going to arrive, but the, so they have to continue with their work, harvesting the dates and doing the household chores. So they do that for a little bit, then they go back to their chores. The night before the attack, we have a narration in the seerah, which says that on the night preceding the attack, they went out doing their chores, and they come back at night, and they're resting, and they slept very, very soundly. They were in a nice, deep, comfortable sleep. One riwayah says that the roosters did not crow that morning. So it's like, it's like the alarm doesn't go off, and you're in a nice, deep sleep after a long day of work. So if you're in that deep sleep and your alarm doesn't go off, guess what else happens? You're taken by surprise. So the roosters don't crow. And when they wake up, they're going about their normal routines. Anas radiallahu anhu tells us a story. He says that some of the workers from the people of Khaybar went out that morning after the sunrise to do their morning chores and they had their tools in their hand. And as they get outside of their fortresses to do this daily work, they see the Muslims on the horizon and they shout, Muhammad and his troops are here. And the Muslims see them seeing them. And the Prophet ﷺ sees this fear in their eyes and he says very loudly, Allahu Akbar, Khaybar is doomed. And then he recites three times the ayah in Surah As-Safat where Allah Ta'ala says, فَإِذَا نَزَلَ بِسَاحَتِهِمْ فَسَاءَ صَبَاحُ الْمُنْذَرِينَ Which means that when we descend upon a people in war, a bad morning it is for those who have been warned. So this is an iqtibas from the ayah and that applies to the people of Khaybar in this situation. He recited that three times and they proceed to the raid. Now this may be the first example we have in the seerah of what people call urban warfare. Because if you consider the forts uh, as built up structures, this means that the battle was not across uh, clear, clear battle lines with two armies lined up facing, facing against each other. It was urban warfare because the Yahud went inside of these fortresses and were very reluctant to come out. So when the Prophet ﷺ begins this raid at Khaybar, he gives the battle flag, one of them, to Hubab ibn Mundir, and he gives another raya, battle flag, to Sa'd ibn Ubadah. 
At this time, all of the clans have secluded themselves inside of the fortresses. These fortresses were populated by the different clans of Banu Nadir. So in one fortress you'll have this clan, all the people are inside. Another fortress will be populated by another clan. So it's divided along family and clan lines. The clans have secluded themselves in these walled forts. And they have made an absolutely fatal error in doing this. Because they conspired to get the help of Ghatafan in their, and get their help in attacking Medina. But they did not consider what would happen if the fight was taken to them directly. Their ultimate plan was to get the allegiance of Ghatafan to eventually go south and attack Medina. That was their ultimate objective. They never even considered once what would happen if they brought the fight to us and we had to fight them at Khaybar. They never considered. So now they're inside of their fortresses and those 10,000 troops that were out there on some days awaiting the arrival, they're now scattered in various forts, all trapped inside. Had 10,000 of them been outside, it would have been 10,000 versus 1,700. They, they have numerical superiority. And in pre-Islamic times, or, or not pre-Islamic, uh, pre-modern times, warfare was largely, the victory in warfare was largely determined by numerical superiority. Right? It's from the asbab. The, the asbab of victory is clearly, one of them is having numerical superiority. It's not the sole determinant of victory by any means. And we see many examples of that in the history. But in the realm of cause and effect, having numerical superiority puts you at a great advantage in, in battle. So they had numerical superiority, but now that they're all in their individual fortresses, that 10,000 is not really 10,000, because 10,000 versus 1,700 would have been yeah, to their advantage numerically. But now the numerical advantage has been taken from them, because they're inside of these fortresses. So that means that each individual fortress, which maybe holds, let's, you could say hundreds, let's say 500, 600 fighting males, now have to face 1,700. And they have to come out. So they don't have the advantage. So the Prophet ﷺ uses this tactical victory to his advantage by attacking the fortresses one by one. So he goes to the largest one first, and then he goes to the others. So by dealing with the largest fortress and then moving on to the next fortress, the 1700, although it's a small number compared to 10,000, it has tactical superiority because it has basically forced by the enemies being inside of the fortresses, their numerical superiority is no longer an advantage for them. So the Sierra works give us the names of these fortresses. Each of them had a name. And the first fortress that was sieged was a fortress called Naim. And this was the largest of the fortresses of the Yehud of Khaybar. And it took around 10 days for the Muslims to conquer it. The Prophet had left Sayyiduna Uthman ibn Affan in charge of the camp that was at the north and he would go out with the Muslims and fight in the day and come back at night. And when you think fighting, you're thinking in two different enemies facing off against each other. It wasn't quite like that. This is siege warfare. So some come out, some stay in and the tool that the people of Khaybar had in war was to throw things from the walled fortresses. Because we mentioned last week that the Muslims at this time did not have the tools for siege warfare. They didn't have the equipment that could be used to handle that kind of fighting where the enemy is held up inside of a fortress. And this became a challenge for them. And the reason why it was a challenge is because they don't have the tools to break the siege. And the Yehud of Khaybar are throwing heavy objects, stones, and other things over the walls 
to hit the Muslims that are trying to get inside. And this, uh, this has actually resulted in a few casualties among the Muslims that were fighting there. And it became a bit frustrating to the Muslims because there's no real easy way to get inside. And as we get closer, they're throwing these things across the wall. So what exactly are we supposed to do? So sometimes the Prophet will go out for a day and engage in the fighting. Some days he would remain back and rest up at the camp. And when he would rest up during the day at the camp the Muslims had set up, he would give the raya to different people to act as commander. When he's out there, he's the commander. When he's back in the camp, he's still the commander, but he's delegating responsibility to different people who were leading the charge as he was resting up at the camp. So when he's resting up at the camp, he's handing the raya, the command, to different people. He gives the command first, the raya, to Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu. Abu Bakr goes out and he fights, he comes back, he's resting up. The next day he gives the raya to Umar radiallahu anhu. Umar radiallahu anhu goes out with the troops and they're fighting and trying to break the siege. He comes back to rest up and they haven't secured victory. This took 10 days. So after Umar radiallahu anhu gets back, we get to this famous story. And it's a really lovely story. He gets back after fighting, holding the raya, the battle flag, being in command. And the Prophet ﷺ utters his famous words. He says, tomorrow I will give the raya, the battle flag, to a man who loves Allah and his messenger and who is loved by Allah and his messenger. He does not name who it is going to be. Leaving everyone in awe and wonder, who is it going to be? Could it be me? Everyone wants to be that person because it's not about uh, being in charge so much as it is receiving the bushra of that statement. A man who loves Allah and his messenger and who is loved by Allah and his messenger. Everyone wanted to be that person. Who had it the day before? That was Umar radiallahu anhu. And he's thinking, man, I would really like to get it tomorrow. He says in, in one riwayah, he says, Never did I ever covet authority except on that day. Because if he had been given the authority on that day, he would be that man described as one who loves Allah and his messenger and who was loved by Allah and his messenger. But they don't know who it's going to be. The next day arrives... The Prophet ﷺ comes out of the tent and he asks the Muslims, Where is Ali? Where is Ali? And the Muslim said, Ali is in his tent. He's dealing with a condition, an eye condition. Now this eye condition, uh, there's a name for it. It's basically eye inflammation. And this comes from the microscopic particles of sand and dust in Arabia and in desert environments in general. When you're in those environments for a long time, it is very possible that, especially when traveling and moving around, the microscopic dust particles uh, get into your nostrils, they get into your ears when the wind blows, they can get into your eyes, and sometimes that can cause uh, a condition where your eyes are really inflamed and your body has an immune response to that and it produces mucus and phlegm and you have a hard time seeing. That's what Imam Ali was dealing with. And you know, the thing about the seerah is a lot of it, to really appreciate it, some of this stuff you actually have to experience. And you can experience this if you live in the desert. So this Ramad, this condition, and the other conditions because of the sand, uh, I experienced it in Mauritania. And experiencing it there, I realized, oh, this is what it is. And you realize it's not easy to deal with. And for, for most people, you just have to wait it out. You have to clean your eyes, wait for your body to fight it off and get rid of whatever has come into your body. 
through your eyes, through your nostrils, whatever. That's what he was dealing with. But he was dealing with it before the journey. In fact, he was dealing with this while he was in Medina. And it was so bad that he was unable to march out with the Muslims going to Khaybar. So as they're marching out and he's in Medina suffering from this inflammation, he thought, no, I, I, can't stand, I can't stay behind. I have to make my way up there no matter what. Regardless of my condition, I have to go. So with that eye inflammation condition, he leaves a couple of days behind the Muslims. Eventually he reaches Khaybar, he catches up with them. By now he's in the tent and he's still dealing with this condition. So the Prophet wasallam says, where is Ali? And they say, Ya Rasulullah, he's dealing with the inflammation in his eyes. He says, have him come to me. So he comes up to him and the Prophet wasallam does this action we call nafath. Nafath is when you mix, uh, when you blow with your mouth like air, but it's slightly mixed with saliva. It's not spitting, but it's not blowing air either. It's, it's in between. So spitting is obvious, uh, blowing is obvious, but then you have in, what is in between. What you're supposed to do, one of the sunnahs before you go to sleep, if you recite the three quls and you do this, you go like that. So this is the mixture of, of spittle with air. He does that, into the eyes of Imam Ali radiallahu anhu wa karamallahu wajha and as soon as it makes contact with his eyes the condition goes away completely his eyes are sharp, his eyes are clear he is ready to go out he is prepared and then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa made a dua for him he said, O oh Allah remove from him cold and heat Remove from him cold and heat. And then he says, later he reflects on this, Imam Ali radiallahu anhu, and he says, Wallahi, I never, after that incident, ever had a reoccurrence of the eye inflammation, nor did I ever suffer from any headaches. And it was later mentioned by the Sahaba that after that dua, Imam Ali would wear summertime clothes in the winter, like it's normal, and he would wear winter clothes in the summer like it was normal. He was unaffected by the heat of the summer or the cold of the winter. He didn't make uh, clothing choices based on the weather, based on the temperature, because he was not affected by the severity of cold or the intensity of heat. And this is, of course, because of the dua. So here, he's now healed up. He has the dua, and he receives the raya, the battle flag of the Prophet And he tells Imam Ali, go forth, and do not turn right or left until Allah opens the fortress for you. Don't turn right, don't turn left, until Allah gives you the opening. So then... He's positioned to go to Khaybar now, to go to the fortress of Naim. And after he's told this, he begins to walk backwards. He walks backwards to the Prophet ﷺ and he turns his head slightly and says, Ya Rasulullah, with what intention should I engage in combat? What niyyah should I have? And the Prophet ﷺ says, Fight them until they declare La ilaha illallah Muhammadun Rasulullah. If they do that, then their blood and their wealth are forbidden to you. Their reckoning is with Allah. And then he said his famous statement. That Allah should guide one person by means of you, is better than having red camels. What's a red camel? It's their equivalent of having a red Ferrari or a red Lamborghini. The rarest and the most expensive of camels. And this tells you that the intention 
is for people's guidance, and that's the ultimate objective. And that is what is sought after in and of itself. The fighting itself is not sought after in and of itself. Bidati, it's a wasila, it's a means. Now the question here is why in this story does Imam Ali walk backwards? Why would he do that? Well, because the Prophet said, don't turn right or left until Allah opens the fortress for you. So he's not, going to, he's not about to turn right or left, literally, to just to go back and ask that question. He's still obeying the command. He's not turning right or left, so he walks backwards to ask that question about what his niyyah should be. And this is, you see, the state of Imam Ali, karamallahu wajha. So now he receives the instruction. He has the dua, he has the instruction. He is now going to carry out his task, which is to go to this fortress of Na'im until Allah opens it for him. What does he do? The seerah mentions that at this point, Imam Ali doesn't walk. He doesn't jog. He sprints to the fortress. And the Muslims who are with him, fighting along with him, they have to sprint and keep up with him. He sprints to the fortress until they get outside of the fortress of Na'im. And there he plants the raya in a large pile of rocks. And he's standing outside of the fortress. As he's standing outside of the fortress, one of the Yahud inside of the fortress looks outside on top. And he says, Man antum, who are you? And he says, I am Ali, the son of Abu Talib. And then that Jewish person says to him, which we can translate as, you will be victorious, or you will have the upper hand, you will have the upper hand by the one who revealed the book to, to Musa. So this is a play on words, because Imam Ali, what is his name? His name is Ali. Alautum is the verb form of Ali. Alautum. So the one who is exalted and who has the upper hand, he says to him, you're going to have the upper hand. This, he sees it for what it is. This is not going to work out in their favor. So after this, some people in the fortress gathered enough, enough gall to actually open it and try to go out and engage in fighting. So some of the Yehud came out of the fortress with their leader and they began to fight individuals. So this is where you get to the actual combat. The first to come out from the fortress was a man named Harith. And he was the, the brother of Marhab, who is the chief of the, the clan in that fortress. So the fortresses themselves, because they're represented by clans, each clan has a, a clan leader. Marhab is the clan leader. His brother Harith goes out to fight. And Ali radiallahu anhu strikes him down. And then the rest of the Yahud that came out, they, they retreated back into the fortress. Close the door. That's it. No more. Just one man down. So now, Harith is cut down. His brother, the clan leader Marhab, comes out wearing armor. And he's ready to fight. He gets into a duel with Amr ibn al-Akwa, who is the brother of Salama ibn al-Akwa that we spoke about last week. The, the champion marathoner, ultra-endurance athlete the one who ran, his brother Amr is here. He gets into this duel with Marhab and they exchange blows. But there's a problem. Amr's sword was a bit too short for this battle. And as he swings, it misses and it ends up striking him in his leg below the knee. This causes him to bleed out and he ends up getting killed just from the massive blood loss. So the Prophet ﷺ later spoke to the family and reassured them that he was not killed by his own hand like a person who commits suicide out of despair of Allah's mercy. Rather, he is also considered a shaheed. But he was struck down by his own sword slipping and striking him below the knee. After this, Marhab was emboldened. And so he does what people would do back then. They would shout out some poetry to challenge any oncomers who want to duel. So Marhab says in some poetry, wearing his armor all proud and haughty, 
Indeed, he says, Khaybar knows that I am Marhab, a fully armed and experienced seasoned warrior, burning with zeal when the wars come forth. He's basically saying, bring it. It's a challenge. By reciting the poem, he's challenging someone who will be brave enough to step forward and fight him after this. And this is where Imam Ali radiallahu anhu steps forward and accepts the Mubaraza. He accepts this duel and he utters his famous lines of poetry. And this, this poetry is just awesome. He says, أَنَا الَّذِي سَمَّتْنِ أُمِّي حَيْدَرَ كَلَيْثِ غَابَاتٍ كَرِيهِ الْمَنْضَرَ أُوفِيهِمْ بِالصَّاعِ كَيْلَ السَّنْدَرَ I am the one whose mother named him Haydara. What does Haydara mean? Lion. It's a word for lion. I am the one whose mother named him Haydara, like the lion of the jungles, fearsome in his countenance. I repay my foes manifold, full measure for measure. So Marhab brings out the poetry. He brings out the poetry. But here's something really interesting. Before the Battle of Khaybar, Marhab, the clan leader of that fort, had a dream. And in this dream, he saw that he was attacked and killed by a lion. Now the dream is going to come true. Now, why does Imam Ali say that I am the one whose mother named him Haydara? Isn't he Ali? Well, Imam al-Nawawi comments on this hadith and he says that Haydara means lion and it is said that Ali was named Asad at the time of his birth. His mother called him Asad. But his father, Abu Talib, was away, or rather, he was away and he wanted the name to be changed. And he was named Asad after his maternal grandfather, Asad ibn Hisham ibn Abdi Manaf. But when his father Abu Talib came back from this trip after his birth, he wanted the name to be changed to Ali. And so he was named Ali. But initially he was named Asad. And everyone receives the nasib of their name. So you have to be careful what you name your children. They receive a share of what, they, what they're named. So in that way, he is an Asad, he is a Haydara. So he recites the poetry and now they're squaring up to duel. Marhab exchanges two blows with Imam Ali and then Imam Ali strikes his head with such force although he's wearing armor the sword cuts into his jaw killing him on the spot it was over for him after this Marhab's other brother named Yasser comes out and he wants some too he asks for a duel and this duel was not between him and Ali Imam Ali gave a chance for Zubair bin Awam to engage in the duel. Zubair bin Awam quickly finished him off. It was, it was no factor. After Mirhab was struck down and Yasser was struck down, the Yahud that had come out of the fort were now really demoralized. So what do they do? They rush back in and they bolt themselves into the fort. Now going back to this issue of names, what was the name of the route to the north that they took? Marhab, welcome. What was the name of the chief of the clan that was struck down? Marhab. So this is a fa'al, it's a positive omen. When Marhab and Yasir were both killed outside of the fort, the Prophet ﷺ was informed. And he says to the Muslims, Abshiru, rejoice, for Khaybar has been... Marhab has been welcomed and it's easy because Yasser means easy and Marhab means welcome. Marhab is struck down, Yasser is struck down, Marhab is welcome, Yasser is easy. He says this whole thing has been, it's welcoming and easy now after this. So they took the fa'il from those two people who were struck down, their names. Now the Yehud have gone back into the fort, they've locked themselves in. Here's where we get to the famous hadith of Abu Rafi'ah In the hadith of Abu Rafi'ah, he reflects on their experiences at the Battle of Khaybar. And he says, 
we went out with Imam with Ali ibn Abi Talib, when the Messenger of Allah وسلم, sent him with the raya, the battle flag. When we neared the fortress, the people came out to him and he fought them. He's referring to the duels. A man from the Yahud struck him and his shield fell from his hand. So now he's talking about the other fights that are happening after these things are going on. They're fighting. He gets struck by one of the Yehud, striking his shield, causing the shield to fall from his hand. So Ali radiallahu anhu, he's very brave. He's among the bravest of the brave. But he takes the asbab. He takes the shield. But he's looking for a shield and he's not finding one. So he says that Ali grabbed a door at the fort and shielded himself with the door. He, you can imagine how large the door is. He grabs the door off of the hinges, pulls it off. He's carrying the door from the side, using it with one arm to shield himself while fighting, holding his sword with the other hand. Abu Rafi says, the shield did not fall from his grip the entire time he was fighting until Allah gave him victory, at which time he tossed it from his hand like this. Abu Rafi adds, seven or eight of us tried to carry the door but could not. This is mentioned by Ibn Hisham. So seven or eight of them tried to carry the door afterwards and they found it too heavy. Imam Ali is an incredibly courageous and powerful man. And he is indeed Haidara. He was a lion in battle. So that is really the first story, the story of the fortress of Naim. Next week, inshallah, we'll go through the other stories, the things that happened with the other fortresses until uh, victory was secured over Khaybar. And then we'll talk about some other issues that relate to certain developments in the fiqh and other matters, insha'Allah ta'ala. We'll talk about the truce and the ghana'im, etc. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Yes. Yeah. It's important to give good names. Uh, there is a, a narration in the Muwattah of Imam Malik. Um, the exact wording escapes me at the moment, but basically it tells the story of a man coming to Umar radiallahu anhu during his khilafah from a distant area. And I can't remember all the names, but he asked the man, where are you from? And he says, I'm from Hutama uh, or something. And he says, uh, what tribe or clan are you from? I'm from the tribe, the, the clan of Shihab. So Hutama is like a blazing fire. Shihab is a meteor. He mentioned these different names associated with fire. And he says, go back to your village. It's on fire. He goes back to his village and indeed it caught fire. So they use that as a, a point that the names have an impact on shaping the character. It's important to give good names to your children. Names... Uh, Prophets, names of, of pious names, beautiful names, Arabd, such and such. Yeah. You can't just open the Mus'haf and pick a random word. Some people do that, right? Uh, someone came to me some months back and they had a list of names. I said, can you tell me what these mean? It was just random words from the Quran. One was, uh, the name was Doubt. Right? I want to name my child La Raib. No doubt. It sounds nice. La Raib. These are two words. It's a negation. Don't name your child La Raib. Two different words for lion. Two different words for lion. Yeah. Because yeah, it's also lay, which is also lion. Yeah. There's many words for lion in Arabic. Yeah. Qaswara. 
حزب النصر يا Oh, that's not Hizb al-Nasr, that's uh, Ad-Dua al-Nasri. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, perhaps from their materialist perspective, they know that when that dua is made, it has an impact on the state of the people, giving them more drive to resist them. So even if they don't believe, they see that it does have an impact on the people they're trying to subjugate. Ad-Dua al-Nasiri by Imam al-Dar'i. Yeah. It was banned by the French. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, he had it in Medina before going. So, well, it's Sandy. Yeah. Yeah, so the Khaybar, from my understanding, it lies atop a vast reservoir of water underneath. And that's why it's this oasis town. But even though it has all of these palm trees, the, the, the soil itself absent the water, it's still dusty. So in those desert environments, that kind of sand can affect the eyes. It can affect the nostrils too. Um, people who are not accustomed to it, they can find that it's, it's, the, it's the quality of the soil, the nature of the soil, combined with the extreme dryness. That dryness combined with the small particles of, of the sand and dirt can be very abrasive to the uh, mucous surfaces of the body in the nose and, and around the eyes. You'll get nosebleeds very easily in that environment simply because the dryness combined with that dust getting into the nose, it creates minor abrasions. Yeah. Again, a lot of, you know, when you go for like the you're there for a period of time, you pull your nose down, you have a, it's like a blackness. Exactly. It comes out. Exactly. So it's, it's because of also the, uh, the petroleum, the oil, and the a lot of the early fiqh talks about the fiqh of nosebleeds because this was a common occurrence. What do you do if you're in salah and you get a sudden nosebleed? I mean, it's different, they have different approaches for how to handle that. But that's discussed because that's the context. It happens frequently. I mean, the school of Imam Madik, if if it's a nosebleed like this and you can pat it, you just pat it and keep praying. Uh, if it's a, a slightly worse, then you are to make the inhina, meaning the, the movements of rukur and sujood without going fully into sujood and rukur. If it's coming out profusely, you can leave the salat without talking to others. Go back, wash yourself up, make wudu, and then come back and join the Jamara. It's a little different. It's, it's you're building on what you missed, but what you prayed counted. No. This talking about a person who has a nosebleed. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, breaking the gates, getting inside, securing their surrender, taking from them the will to fight, all of those things would be considered victory. Yeah. That was a later development. Yeah. Yeah, the Manjaniq didn't come until much later. At this time, they didn't have that kind of equipment. Yeah.
no archers? They don't have archers? There's on, archers. On, on their balconies. Get a bow and arrow and try to hit a leaf in a tree. Hit a squirrel. You see how hard it is. When they're on the ground, moving targets like that, it's much easier. But they have a they have cover and concealment. 